start our series in Hebrews. Oh yeah, dismiss the kids. Thank you. <laughs> the kids are like, no, we're not in fourth grade yet. Please. Uh, dodgeball and candy. Children, please, with, I believe it's Mrs. Nettie and Mrs. Maisie today. So may the Lord bless you. 9-11-2016. 15 years since the OG 9-11. The 9-11 that is etched in our memory, right? Where we'll never forget the, 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 the two planes into the two crumbling towers. We'll never forget the th- almost think of 3,000 lives lost in that moment. Really for us in that moment, maybe for the first time in, in my generation, many of us watched these events and we began to really see the cost of freedom. Right? It, it's not free. Freedom. Right? And we began to, to value and take pride in America in a real sense from a nationalistic perspective that, yeah, this is what we value. We value freedom. And that freedom we felt like was at, was at stake, was challenged. Freedom of speech. Freedom of assembly. Freedom of what? Religion. And even now, we enjoy, for who knows how much longer, we don't know what events are coming, but for right now, we enjoy the freedom to be able to worship God without fear of being persecuted to the extent of being arrested, thrown in jail, or told not to worship in that way, at least by the legal authorities. So we're free to worship today. But even though worship, in the sense that we experience it, is free, that doesn't mean that it's easy. We can freely worship Jesus today. But that doesn't necessarily mean that being faithful to Jesus, that worshiping Him, that that remaining steadfast in our commitment to Jesus is easy. Matter of fact, it's anything but that. Right in today's world, there is much intellectual, academic pressure to walk away from trust and faith in Jesus Christ. There is much uh, intellectual, there's a lot of political pressure with dividing issues that put people on two sides and each throwing darts, arrows at one another. There's cultural pressure. Culture just does not see it. They don't value Christ. They don't recognize who He is. And they value something quite different. And so there's a cultural, political, intellectual pressure. And I also think there is a situational pressure. Like, life is just a big pain in the butt sometimes. It's hard. Suffering, struggling. This doesn't seem to be fair. This doesn't make sense. There must not be a God that loves me. There's temporal, 
situational pressure that seems to pull us away, to turn away from our faith in Jesus Christ. Are you feeling that today? If you feel that at all, if you feel the pull, you're feeling the very thing that the recipients of the book of Hebrews felt. They had heard of Christ, they'd heard the gospel, they'd received Him, and yet there was pressure for them to walk away, to turn aside. At the very least, there was pressure to take Jesus and add something more to Jesus. To truly have hope and assurance in their relationship with God and the dealings of the minutiae of life. Pressure. It was hard for them to stay faithful. The Jewish teaching that they once knew and heard and embraced, that they walked away from when they embraced Christ, there was a lure to go back. Roman culture pulled them in another direction. Life came at them, it was difficult, they were persecuted. It was not easy to be a Christian. And so there was a temptation to fall away. The author of Hebrews is concerned, to say the least. He loves the church. He loves these people very much. And so he writes a letter. And he is doing so to encourage faithfulness in the face of pressure to walk away. He pens each chapter as a plea. Don't miss the superior nature of Jesus compared to anything else. Maybe today you feel this pressure. Maybe you've forgotten who Christ really is. Maybe in all the noise of society... You're tempted to walk. If that's you today, this passage is for you. This series is for you. Or maybe you're here today and you've only heard of pop culture's version of Jesus. Jesus is a nice guy. And you don't really know the totality. There's so much more to engage about who Christ is, what He's done. And why He is so superior to any other truth, God, or faith claim. If that's you today, if you've never really grappled with the surpassing worth and nature of Christ, this passage, this whole series is for you. So let's turn to Hebrews. Chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. Let's see what God has to say in these opening verses through His servant, the author of the book of Hebrews. Who we don't really know for certain, the only thing we know for certain is that it was close to and consistent with the very teaching of the apostles. 
one of the main reasons it was included in the canon of Scripture. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of God. And all God's people said, Amen. In today's world, you may hear statements like this. No God or faith claim is more valid than another. Many gods, they're all the same. They go what? To the same place. Have you heard that? Yes, you have. Because we live in a pluralistic society. A pluralistic society professes that we can know God in and through a vast array of truth claims or gods. That no one God is better than another. That they're all basically the same. And as long as you have faith in one of them, You can know God. You may also hear something like this. There may be a God, but we can't really know who he or she or whatever it is. Right? There's a profession that says, yeah, I'm willing to admit the possibility that God exists, but not really the viability that he's knowable. Yeah, he probably exists, or she, or whatever. God, supreme being. Yeah, okay, but we can't know for sure who they are. We can't really know them. He's unknowable. That's the agnostic society that we live in, right? That's what an agnostic says, that, that we're willing to concede the possibility of God, but refuse to accept the knowability of God. That's the world in which we live. That's why the, the vast, uh, the most... Uh, fastest, I'm sorry, the fastest growing demographic of people in just terms of a religious perspective are not affiliated. Nothing. Right? Because that's what they believe about God. Kind of irrelevant, out there, unknowable. Not really attached to, personally connected with any one of them. And yet we read verse 1, long ago at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That God has revealed Himself to His people historically for ages. 
God has spoken. God has, in other words, revealed himself to his people. He's not hidden. He's not kept himself at a distance. He's not been silent. God has revealed himself to his people, to the world. That's what God has done. Long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Right? The, the way in which he communicated was through people, through Moses, through prophets like Samuel and Nathan and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the minor prophets. That God had a desire to make himself known so that he would be known by his people. We remember in Exodus, right, that, that powerful encounter where Yahweh shows up, reveals his name and his law. He wants to be known for who he is personally. That God has not been silent. That has profound implication for us. God has spoken in this world through prophets. But, verse 2, thus denoting a contrast, yeah, he spoke long ago, he spoke many times, in many ways, through a group of people known as the prophets. But, denotes a contrast, okay? We're going in a different direction. But, in these last days, these days, the days that are known as the days in which Christ has come into the world, Conquered sin and death and resurrection. These last days, right? When the opening of the book of Acts start, what does is, what is Peter tell the crowd? That in these last days, God has poured out His Spirit. This is the day of the Lord. This is a different kind of day that we live in from the days of the fathers. So in these last days, by the way, we're in these last days, just like they were in these last days, 2,000 years ago, when Peter preached that sermon, we're in these days. God, He has spoken to us by His Son. So there is a new word, a final definitive word of God to us in these days. And guess what it is? It's not the law. It is what? The gospel. It is the Son. It's a final, full, decisive revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So, so many people will say, God has never spoken to me. He's never revealed Himself to me. But what we see here is the contrary. That God has spoken. God has revealed Himself to the world through His Son. And it is a final word. It is a decisive word, and it is a clear word so that we can know the truth, the truth, not just any truth, but the truth about who He is and what He has done. So if you're wondering, does God speak or does He hide Himself? Is He knowable? The answer to the question is what? Absolutely. You can know God because God has 
made himself known fully, finally, decisively in Jesus. That's what he's saying here. And again, we have to be careful not to contrast it too much because the Old Covenant, the Old Testament is consistent with the New Testament. It wasn't that he had a word and then he decided to go with a different word. That would not be true. But there is a, there's a pointing to. The Old Testament foreshadowed and pointed to the real deal. The final word. All the words of the Old Testament led to the final, decisive, all-encompassing word of God, revelation of God, Jesus. And so they're very much distinguishable, but yet inseparable, the old and new. It is really one word that has found its final form in Christ. God has revealed Himself to the world. He's revealed Himself to you in Jesus Christ. That has such implication for a pluralistic agnostic society. There is one God that is God. It's Jesus. There is no other God. There is no other revelation of God except for Jesus. And man, do we know who He is. He's not some vague, ethereal creature somewhere doing something. He is Jesus. He's a person. And He is the Son of God. God has spoken. So don't say to yourself, God has never spoken to me. I've not heard Him. I know what you're saying, the audible voice. But even to demand God's audible voice is to demand something more than His final decisive word. It's to say His word, His revelation is not enough. I need something more. But you can have nothing more than the revealed Son of God in the Word of God. You can have nothing more than that that is sufficient for your salvation and for your knowing of God. God's spoken. And it's in Jesus Christ. And look at what he says about this Jesus. He's spoken to us by his son. Look at what he says. Seven successive statements. SSS, you like that. That was on accident. But it felt good. Seven successive statements. Statements about Jesus. Oh, Jay, man. Are you ready? You should grab a pen, maybe, and write these things down. Or at the very least, start underlining them one by one. And you're like, he's going to go through all seven? Man, he always preaches so long. How long will this go? I'm going to do my best to live in quickness of succession here. But not so quick that we miss out on the glory of what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us. What of this Jesus? 
What makes this revelation so final? So sufficient? What makes this word of God worth listening to? He's appointed to us. I'm sorry. He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Psalm 2.8 says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Speaking uh, ahead to what the Father would do with the Son. Give all things, the nations, as His inheritance. All that the Father has and He's given to the Son as the heir of all things. The bottom line is this, that Jesus, the one in which God has spoken finally, that Jesus, that Son, is of the highest status and dignity as the heir of all things. That there is no one above Jesus. There is no one that has a claim on Jesus. Rather, Jesus, His authority, and His status has universal, absolute, eternal claim over all things. That's what the Scriptures teach about this Jesus. Profound implications. Every life, every time, Every place, Christ stakes claim to it. It is mine. Jesus is the heir of all things. All that is God has been given to the Son. There is no one else that holds the position of heir. It is Christ. It is Jesus, the Son of God. God has spoken to us in these last days through His Son whom He has appointed the heir of all things. Is there an area, aspect, relationship, period, aspect of your life, a day of your week that has not been taken claim? It is mine by the person of Christ. That's a very important question. Because this is the word that God has given to us. Next. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son through whom He created the world. You ask the question, where did I come from? What is my origin ultimately? It's Jesus. Jesus is your Creator. The means in which God made the world. When He said, and God said, let there be, He did so through Jesus. Jesus not only saved you, He made you. That has profound implications on how we live. I was talking to that with my daughter, uh, uh, I think about a week ago. We go through the catechism. Who made you? God made me. What else did God make? God made all things. Why did God make you and all things? For His own glory. There's one question I always want to add into the catechism. How did God create the world? I should say, by His powerful Word. 
And we know in John 1 that his powerful word is no one less than Christ. He is the word of God. And so he made the world. Right? He has spoken to us in these days through the one that made us on the first day. Jesus is the creator of the world. Next, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. He is the radiance of the glory of God. I must confess to you that trying to think and ponder on these next two things were so hard to quantify and understand in my pea little brain. But we read the words, He is the radiance of the glory of God. F.F. Bruce says, Just as the radiance of the sun reaches this earth, so in Christ, the glorious light of God shines into the hearts of men and women. That Jesus is the one that, that reflects, that, that uh, puts forth the glory of the nature of God. That to see the glory of God, you're really seeing and experiencing Christ and nothing else. That the glory of the invisible God is made visible through the shining of the person and the work of Christ into the hearts of men and women. That if you want to know the glory of God for what it really is, you have to behold Jesus. If you want to see His splendor, experience His majesty, to grapple with His incomparable worth, you must see it in Jesus, nothing else. Because Jesus is, by His nature, the radiance of the glory of God. As the sun beams down on the earth and we experience and see and live in its light, so the glory of God shines in our hearts through the glory and the uh, radiance of Christ Himself. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact representation of God. Next it says, but in these last days... He's spoken to us by His Son, who is the exact imprint of His nature. You think of a stamp, right? Or, or the, the thing that, that, that creates the coin into the metal, and it stamps it. And there's an image that's left, right? That's what Jesus is, of the very being and the essence of God. That Jesus is the stamp of the essence of God. Perfect. There are no discrepancies. There's no inconsistencies. That if you're looking at and experiencing, trying to understand the essence, the nature of God, that you must look to Christ. And when you look to Christ, you see no discrepancy. No falling short of that glory. You see, that's where we are. We fall short of glory. We, we are images of God, but we are not the exact imprint of God. Only Jesus is that. What a profound thing to think about God, deity, the divine, and then 
the exact imprint, the thing that we can see, the thing that would be hidden, the character, the, the person, the essence of God would be invisible to us. But in Jesus, we see it and we see it without discrepancy. That's the glory of Christ. That's the God that we worship. goes on to say that he's spoken to us by his son who upholds the universe by the word of his power. What he's saying here is this, is that Jesus and Jesus alone is the one that holds the universe together. Such a cosmological, universal statement that the world in which we live is literally held together and sustained by Jesus. Man, that is profound implication for our lives because in a temporal sense, in a circumstantial sense, in the midst of suffering and difficulty, we feel like our lives are completely falling apart at the seams. Is that an overstatement? We watch the news and we feel like this world is doomed. It is falling apart at the seams. It is crumbling to the ground. That would be our perception. But we see here that in Jesus Christ, the one in which God has spoken and revealed himself, finally and decisively, in Jesus Christ we see someone who is holding everything together at all times. And truly when we look at this word, we see that he's not just sustaining our lives, but there's a connotation that he's carrying it along. He's bringing it where it needs to go, where he receives the utmost glory and we receive the utmost joy. He's carrying out his purposes through our struggles. He's holding it together. He's carrying it along. That's what Jesus does. That's the word that God has spoken to this world and his people. He upholds all things by His powerful Word. If you're falling apart, ask yourself the question, how tight are you holding to His Word? When people are walking through difficulty, our first counsel as elders is, where's your Bible? And some people would think, man, that's not really helpful. I need this, 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 this. We ask, are you in close connection to the Word of God? Because it's the Word of God that keeps everything together. It's the Word of God that makes sense out of the mess. It's the Word of God that teaches us and molds our thinking and sustains us and keeps us on pace to our final destination. The Word of God is our spiritual food to deal with every aspect of our lives. If we're not connected to the Scriptures, if we're not engaging God in His revelation, right? man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He upholds the world by the word of His power. This is no weak word. Amen? This is the very word that has changed your life. This is the very word upon, is the foundation of our faith. We stand upon the revealed will of God in the scriptures, which really reveals the true word of God, the final word of God, Christ. And it's he that upholds 
us and this world by the word of his power. Where is your life in reference to the scriptures? If you're walking away from it, life will fall apart. You're pulling yourself away from the source of substance and sustenance. Enough has been said about this. The text goes on to say, In these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, who after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Friends, we can't gloss over this. I'm going to be very brief, but don't miss that phrase. It looks like a throwaway. Oh, by the way, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It seems like just an introductory statement, as if it's something that we can just kind of quickly gloss gloss over. Friends, he made purification for sins. That's the word in which God has brought forth to the world. He gave his revelation through his son who has made purification for our sins. That the very thing that separated us from knowing God decisively to understanding who he really is, sin, the thing that caused us to fall short of the very glory that he radiates, sin, the very obstacle of our, that weighs our eternal, eternity in balance. That very thing known as sin, our real enemy in this world, Christ dealt with it. It no longer has dominion over those who place their faith in this Son. So if you're wrestling today with feeling guilty and dirty and so far from God, severed from His presence because of your sin, listen, it's in Jesus that you have purification of your sin. That you are cleaned. That you are purified. That you are sanctified. That you are brought back into relationship with the living God. He made purification for sins. We cannot hang out there long enough. But understand this, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Sitting down shows an effective nature to what he has done. He no longer has to make purification for sins. It was finished in his work. He sat down at the right hand of God. What Christ did was effective. It made purification for sins. And in that work, he was honored to the place of highest prestige and status at the right hand of the majesty on high. James and John came to Jesus and said, Hey, uh, when you come into your kingdom, just need a favor. Let me sit at your right hand and the other guy at your left. Deal? He's like, it's not for you to give. It's only for the Father to give. That it is Christ in his death and resurrection. Remember what he said to them? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Talking about drinking the cup of the wrath of God. Incurring that. Satisfying the wrath of God in the purification of sin. See, to sit at the right hand, to sit at that place of highest status and honor requires that you drink the cup on behalf of sinful humanity. Can you do that? James and John are like, yeah, we can probably do that. They were wrong. (laughs) Only Christ could do that. And he did it. He sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the text goes on to say that the way in which God has spoken to us is in a name that is far superior than any other name. Right? Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else. Speaking of Jesus. For there's no other name. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. You see, we named our kids quite simply. We just wanted to like how it sounded. I like Evelyn. It's cute. Annika. Silas. Kind of like unique, rugged, little... Yeah. What's it mean? I don't know. See, that's kind of lame, right? You see, there's not necessarily a connection to identity, meaning, and our name in 2016. But back then, when you were to talk of the name of someone, you were talking about their identity. You were talking about the essence of who they were. And what he's saying here is that Jesus has inherited a name far superior than angels, far superior than any other name. What he's saying is there is no one like him. He's far superior. He far surpasses anyone, anything, ever. In his essence. In his identity. And I think that's really a good way to wrap this up is to recognize that God has spoken to us by His Son to whom we can compare none. Seven statements in succession that reveal the glory of Christ. You can compare Him to no one. We have this ongoing debate in our family. Who's better, LeBron or Stephen Curry? Let's just all praise the Lord that Silas is downstairs. We've heard a few too many Stephen Currys. See, in his mind, it's all about statistics, right? Here's the deal. Boop, 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 boop. He just lists off LeBron's statistics. And by the way, the only one he remembers is we just beat those guys. So I don't know what this debate is about, right? The statistics point to the stature. These statements point to the stature. Listen, here's the thing that messes with the whole conversation. Comparing LeBron and Stephen Curry. You just drop MJ in the conversation, and now everyone's just like, oh, well, yeah. Right? There's something about the stature of MJ in the NBA. It's just, well, yeah, that's a, that's a totally different conversation. Listen, when we look at Jesus, and then we compare him to every other God, every other glory, it's like, well, yeah, we're not even on the same stratosphere. We're talking about completely different things. He's incomparable. There's only one heir. It's Jesus. There's only one creator. It was Christ. There's only one radiance of God's glory. It's Christ. There's only one exact imprint. No discrepancies. It's Christ. There's only one who's upholding the world by the word of his power. It's Christ. There's only one who's made purification for sins. It's Jesus Christ. There's only one that sits at the right hand of the Father. It's Jesus Christ. There's only one that has the name above every name. It can only be Jesus. God has spoken to us by His Son to whom we compare none. That's what we see this 
opening, this eloquent opening of the author of Hebrews really pointing out. And then really what we see is this. I can say so many things, but I'm not going to. What we see is this. That while we look at the intellectual argument in the world, we mess with that ongoing thing of science and this and faith and reason, and we, we look at society and culture, we look at the political realm, man, we could start making a list of reasons why we should not stay faithful to Jesus Christ. Why we should not place our faith in Him, hear that word, hold on to that word, and be faithful to that word of God till the end. We could find many reasons. In fact, it's my hunch that many of us will, will take any reason to not believe because of our sin. But if we just look at who He is and we see the word of His power that reveals who He is to us today and we look at seven successive statements that point out the incomparable nature of Jesus, we have way more reason to hang in there than we do to depart. So do not give up, Christian. We're only getting started in Hebrews. We have every reason to trust God for who He is. We have every reason in the midst of pressure from the world, the pressure that comes from inside of us in our sin, the situations. We have every reason to look at all that and say, this is going up and down constantly, but the nature and the person of Christ is as old as eternity. It's unchanging. I can give my life to that forever. I won't give up. I won't walk away. And I won't add more to God's definitive, sufficient word. I won't say to God, you need to tell me more than Jesus. I won't say to God, for me to really stay faithful to you, I'm going to need to add some things beyond you because you're just insufficient. Really, your word to me needs to be improved upon, God. No. I've heard the word of Christ, I hear it, I trust it, and I remain faithful to it. Because to him, we can compare none. There is no one like the Lord. No one. Let's pray. Oh God, who am I? Who are we? I read this passage and I feel like Peter. It's too much for me to handle. These seven statements of Christ. The holiness of it, the weight of it is too much for me to bear. The sermon, the statements, they, they kind of exhaust me. It's beyond me. It's too much for my immorality, my sin, my struggle. It's too much for me to hold on to and receive. I kind of start tuning out, Lord, when I read it. Because its glory is too weighty. I feel like Peter who, in the face of your holiness, says, Depart from me, Lord. I'm, I'm a sinful man. And yet, as overwhelming as your essence and being is, we also relate with Peter's words when Jesus said, 
do you want to go too? As people were walking away from Christ, do you want to go? And Peter looked at him and said, to whom will we go? Where else will we go, Lord? It's you that have the words of eternal life. There's no one like you, Jesus. Yeah, there's part of me that says, depart from me. I want nothing to do with this. I can't really... There's another part of me that says, where are we going to go? Oh God, keep us faithful. Remind us of the glory of Christ. Help us to trust in Him. Uphold us by the word of your power. In Christ's name, amen.